0: Please. Isaiah 37. And let's begin there in chapter 37, verse 1, our study this evening. Father, this evening we thank you and bless you for the opportunity to read and to study your word tonight. We pray that you would anoint and bless us with your Holy Spirit. Lord, open our eyes, our ears, our hearts your truths, that whatever that we can receive from this particular passage, to apply practically, personally, that we will be able to do so, Lord, by the leading and guidance of your Holy Spirit. Grant that to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The first verse of this particular chapter, Isaiah 37, is dependent upon the previous verses that had to do with the representatives of King Hezekiah having gone to hear the words of the uh, commander of, of, or, or the chief of staff, as it were, of, of Sennacherib, king of Assyria. And all that was said in chapter 36 that we studied the last time uh, is is important to go back if you weren't with us the last time, but read 36. In in any event, uh, they were trying to dishearten uh, the children of Judah. They were trying to dishearten the king. Rather than having them come and just wipe up Jerusalem, they were discouraging them and wanting them just to give up and surrender. And with these words that were handed down from this Rabshakeh, as you'll, hear, you'll meet him again, uh, came this grief that uh, was shown to us in the last, chap- uh, last verse of chapter 36, where it says, Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, Shebna the scribe, and Joah the son of Asaph the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn, and told him the words of the Rabshakeh. And again, that is... Uh, you know that, that that symbol of grief. With that in mind, we go into verse one that says, "And so it was when King Hezekiah heard it, that he tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, sackcloth, and went into the house of the Lord. And then he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, Shebna the scribe, and the elders of the priests, covered with sackcloth, which is a kind of a very coarse burlap type of material. Again, another symbol of mourning and and distress. He sends them to Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos. And they said to him, thus says Hezekiah, this day is a day of trouble and rebuke and blasphemy. For the children have come to birth, but there is no strength to bring them forth. It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to reproach the living God and will rebuke the words which the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. Now the question that I would have you all to consider tonight is, how do we handle crises, calamities, and predicaments? how do we handle crises when they're thrust into our very face now let's face it we all have them we all have crises we all deal with calamities and predicaments for the most part we deal with them as unexpected events but distinction arises distinctions i should say arise between people who either develop good spiritual disciplines to deal with difficult situations in contrast to those who hardly ever exercise themselves in the things of God. The case in point is this, it is the person of Hezekiah, the king. Because here was someone that we spoke of last time who was a good king in the eyes of the Lord. And while he wasn't perfect, he did great things unto the Lord and for his people. And as I mentioned and quoted a few different passages about Hezekiah, here was a person who knew the Lord. Here was a person who spent time with the Lord. And again, there were times when he was influenced by his his uh, his own advisors. And one of the major problems, of course, is what we studied last time, that that uh, they they encouraged him to, to seek a, a, an alliance with Egypt. You know, that maybe with Egypt coming alongside of them, they can defeat the Assyrian army, even though the Assyrians had just trampled over many, many other nations, and as well the northern kingdom of Israel. But that, this, is the, this is the whole idea of what I'm saying, dealing with the issue of spiritual disciplines. Hezekiah nonetheless was a good person, a godly person, a person that was understanding of spiritual disciplines in his life. And you see, on a personal note for us, you may not see, you may not see the benefits of daily Bible reading right away. But it does help to build up a lasting protection around you when you do happen to face those trials. I think of some kids, you know, that are going to school, especially in high school. I- I've oftentimes heard this. I think some of us even said it that when we were in high school. When We won't talk about when that was. But we probably said when we had to take algebra... When am I ever going to use this? But eventually you may have liked math and you know, got into more of the, di- the, the other heavier disciplines of math, algebra, and uh, calculus, and trigonometry, and all of that. And, and eventually, maybe because you sought a, a job in the sciences or, or in, in some kind of medical field, you began to use it, or, or even in the engineering field, and you began to use it. But you had to use it every day, and you had to be disciplined in it every day. And the same goes for our daily Bible reading. The same goes for, for what we do on a daily basis with God's Word. Are we getting ourselves immersed in God's Word to the, uh, to the extent that even though we may not be going through those crises right now, when it does happen, will we be ready? Will, be, will we be equipped? This is the reason why we want to teach you the Word of God verse by verse, line upon line, precept upon precept, and, and, and not leave anything behind when we deal with God's Word. Because we want you to be ready... Because you're going to face those times of trials. You know, the same goes for daily prayer. The same goes for our prayer life. And regular, consistent church attendance. And I'm not saying this just because I'm a pastor. And I want to see everybody in church. I want to see all the chairs filled. Of course I do. Who doesn't want to see that? But the fact of the matter is that when we begin to slack in church attendance, we're only hurting ourselves. We're only hurting ourselves because we're missing out on the fellowship that God wants us to have with one another. But most importantly, we're missing out on the instruction of God's Word. We're missing out on the opportunities to pray one with another, to offer ourselves as servants to one another so we can encourage one another and build each other up until the day that Jesus comes. All of these are spiritual disciplines that we cannot neglect. It is all about spiritual preparation. And Hezekiah had been spiritually prepared for what was to transpire. And so as we saw last time then, this person that was called the Rabshakeh, that was a title, the Assyrian spokesman for King Sennacherib, he stood outside the city walls of Jerusalem shouting taunts and threats, as we saw last time, to Hezekiah's representatives as well as to those who had gathered on the walls of the city the ones who had come close to see what was going on, to hear what this Assyrian had to say to them. And when they heard these threats and they heard these taunts, the king's messengers returned to Hezekiah with their garments torn out of grief. And as they share with Hezekiah this news, he reacts in like manner, tears his clothes, he covers himself in sackcloth as an expression of his grief and his deep mourning, knowing the dedication. The dedication of the Assyrians and the the dedication they had to completely conquer Jerusalem. They knew that this was what they were going to do. So first of all, Hezekiah sees the situation for what it it truly was. And I think these are lessons that we don't want to, 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 to miss. Hezekiah sees the situation for what it really was and truly was. The city was in a desperate strait. The city was in desperate in a desperate place. Sennacherib was no pushover. He wasn't wishy-washy in his ways. He wasn't going to say one thing and then do another. In other words, if he said, I'm going to come and get you, he's going to come and get him. That's the way he was throughout all of the northern section of, of, of Asia Minor, all the way over into the northern part of Israel and down sweeping into the northern part of Israel and then going around and certainly conquering all of the lands around them. And so they were in deep trouble. Jerusalem was in deep trouble. Judah had already been attacked in many many cities, 47 cities as a matter of fact. But he saw the situation for what it was. He didn't try to, you know, to, you know play that game of denial, you know, that sometimes people do. It's not really that way. No, it is. It, it really is. It's a troublesome situation. But secondly, Hezekiah went into the house of the Lord. Please understand what he's doing. He's not going into the—he's not going into the, the the holy of holies. He's just going into the courts where he can pray, and he goes into the house of the Lord. Now this was an even better reaction. The first reaction is he—he he, he understood the situation. The second reaction is better. He goes into the house of the Lord. He didn't allow his grief. You see to turn him to reject the power and the help of the Lord. How many times do people go into some state, some state of grief and, and at that point in time try to figure everything out themselves and, and in, the, in the process they're rejecting the power of God because they're not praying, they're not seeking the Lord and they're not seeking His Word. But Hezekiah goes in, he doesn't let his grief turn him to reject the power and the help of the Lord. And when he communed with God, just like any of us, when we commune with God, what happens? When Hezekiah communed with God, he developed a proper perspective of that situation. When we commune with God, we begin to develop the proper perspective of the situation. And this is what he did. David understood this when he says in Psalm 73, verse 17, Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. He's speaking of his enemies until I went into the sanctuary of God to seek the face of the Lord, to seek God's direction, to seek God's guidance. Then I understood therein. I didn't understand it before. I tried to figure it out myself, is essentially what he was saying. He was in that very same state of grief as Hezekiah. But he says, when I went into the house of God, when I went into the sanctuary, then I understood therein. In other words, his enemies... He understood that God was in control of taking care of the enemy of our soul. And this is something that we should continue to learn as God's people. When we are under attack, whether it be from the enemy himself or even from brothers and sisters coming against us, and that happens too much in the church, but I'm going to, you know, lay it out right now. When we are under attack, whether it be from the enemy, from enemies of the cross, or even from brothers and sisters coming against us, We are not to retaliate. We are to get on our knees. We are to bring the situation before God. That is what we are supposed to do. We are to bring the situation before the Lord. Consider Psalm 6, verses 6 through 10. David says, I'm weary with my groaning. All night I make my bed swim. I drench my couch with tears, with my tears. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows old because of all of my enemies. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity, for the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. Notice verse 9. The Lord has heard my supplication. The Lord will receive my prayer. Let all my enemies be ashamed and greatly troubled. Let them turn back and be ashamed suddenly. Why? Not because David is empowered, but it is because the Lord knows. The Lord has heard the cry of His people. David did not get up to retaliate. David gave it to God. And so he saw the situation. Hezekiah saw the situation for what it was. Secondly, he goes before the house of the Lord. He prays. Thirdly, the third thing that Hezekiah did was also good. He sought out the word of the Lord through the prophet of the Lord. He sought out the word of the Lord through the prophet of the Lord. In Isaiah 37 verses 2 through 5, the next section of our text, it says, Then he sent Eliakim who was over the household, Shebna the scribe, and the elders of the priests, covered with sackcloth. Where did he send them? To Isaiah. Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos. And they said to him, Thus saith Hezekiah, This day is a day of trouble and rebuke and blasphemy, for the children have come to birth, but there is no strength to bring them forth. That is a tremendous picture. It is a picture that, that, that we need to see is being given to us of, of this uh, trouble that they're having. I'll explain the picture in a moment. It may be, it says, that the Lord your God will hear the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Syria, has sent to reproach the living God. And as you studied with us last time, you realize that this Rabshakeh was saying all kinds of mocking things about God himself. He said a lot of things about them, but as soon as he stepped into that that realm of saying things about the living God, he was in trouble. And then it it goes on to say this, And we'll rebuke the words which the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer. They're going to Isaiah to say, Isaiah, pray. Pray for us. Pray for the people. Lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. So the servants of King Hezekiah uh, came to Isaiah. You know what we're going to find out that's interesting here is that Isaiah gives the word of the Lord, but he doesn't pray. Interesting. I'll, I'll tell you why. Because he's already prophesied what's going to happen. Remember last week I said, for the first 35 chapters, we dealt with this whole issue of Assyria coming, and we've even seen the prophecies of what's going to happen to them. Isaiah is, is, going, to, is going to be a, a, a mouthpiece for God, but he's not praying. Because he's already sure of God's word. See, he's already sure of the word that God has already given. It's not to say that we don't pray. The fact of the matter is when we know that God has given a word that he's going to do, we ought we, we to trust him. Isaiah is trusting the Lord. And as Hezekiah is praying, see, Hezekiah is praying, and he sends his men to Isaiah with the news so he can also pray over the situation. They told him that the day of trouble had arrived and there was no one to deliver them. This is what they're saying to him. Nobody's really here to deliver us. The children have come to birth, but there is no strength to bring them forth. The picture is that of a woman delivering her baby and having this long and and painful and exhausting labor, but has finally run out of strength. Uh, Might not complete the birth, in other words. And so the mother and child, what happens if that doesn't happen in many cases Mother and child would die together. They ask Isaiah to pray. And to beseech the Lord. To deliver them based on the fact that the Assyrians were mocking God. And dragging His glory through the mud. They were at the end of their rope, so to speak. You ever been there? You've been through certain troubles. You've been like at the end of the rope. There have been many times when I've I've, I've dealt with people who have come to the end of their rope. Many years ago, about almost close to 30 years ago, I had a friend that... uh, everything was falling apart in his life and I was a young Christian but he called me and picked me up in the middle of the night 2 o'clock in the morning with a gun because he was involved in security so he had his own gun and things had just gotten so bad that he picks me up at 2 o'clock in the morning and I see the gun and I'm thinking okay Lord, what are we going to do? We ended up going to a 24-hour jack-in-the-box, I think, you know. And we sat there for a few hours. That's when I began to realize what it means to be at the end of your rope. And not only at the end, but you know at the end of a rope there's usually these little threads. This guy was on the last thread of the last rope and, and all I could do was tell him about Jesus and, and and how he has the power to rescue us not only from our sins but from the troubles, the trials that we put ourselves in because of sin and that night I think, figure around 5 o'clock in the morning you know there he was Weeping like a baby. Somebody I'd never seen cry in his life. And he received Jesus and his life was changed all around. And even though things fell apart in that, at that time with that, his situation, God gave him another life, another direction, another road. He was no longer at the end of his rope. And he trusted in God. And to this day, he continues to follow Christ. Not because of me, (laughs) but because of Jesus Christ. Knowing where we are on that rope, the end of the rope. Oftentimes it's that point. It's that point of total frailty that we are now at, that place of trusting totally then in God's power. It is at that point of, 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 of total weakness when we are now at the place of putting our whole trust in the Lord. The last strand of the rope. Second Corinthians chapter 12, Paul deals with this. When he says and speak to, speaks the words that were spoken from the Lord to him, and he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. And therefore, most gladly, I would rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and needs and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. When I'm on that last end of that rope, I have to know that this is now when I have to totally trust in the Lord. And I've got to tell you, the Lord specializes in rope ends. The Lord specializes in rope ends. He is good at that. And so getting back to Isaiah 37 verse 6, it says, Isaiah said to them, notice what he says here. He says, thus shall you say to your master, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid of the words which you have heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Surely I will send a spirit upon him, and he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. So now he says, Thus saith the Lord. What is Isaiah doing? He is being the prophet now. He is receiving God's word to give to Hezekiah, You know, that phrase, thus saith the Lord, is oftentimes used by wannabe prophets nowadays to cast some light in their direction, to appear to be empowered or anointed by God, to speak for God. We hear a lot, thus saith the Lord. Well, I venture to say that there have been too many people duped by those charlatans because the Word of God was not guarded in their hearts. So as to reveal the ignorance of the false prophet. There have been many times when I have even heard people say, "Thus saith the Lord," and go into some kind of a uh, some kind of a s- uh, statement or or some kind of a speech of some sort that, 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 that would be would, would would not you know it, it is completely and and totally uh, uh, going against the grain of God's word. I mean, but but they call it new revelation. God is giving new revelation here, folks. If if it doesn't line up with God's word, then it is trash. If it doesn't line up with God's Word, then it is false. It is a false prophecy. The person's a false prophet, and he needs to be avoided. That is why we need to know God's Word. And Isaiah here say, can say it. Why? Because he was, a, he was one of God's prophets. It needs, needs to be that we become like those Bereans that Luke talks about in Acts chapter 17. That when Paul came into their particular city and all, they checked Paul out. They checked him out with God's Word. Acts 17, 11 says, these were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the Word with all readiness and searched the Scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. But Isaiah spoke for the Lord and they knew that. He was indeed a credible and he was a provable prophet. Everything he had said so far for us, it's the first 35 chapters of this book, but everything he said so far has come to pass. Now they're coming to him, certainly to ask him to pray, but he says, hear what God has to say about this situation for you now. So beginning with a word of gentle rebuke, because he does rebuke them. He He says, don't be afraid of the words which you've heard. With which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Don't be afraid of that. He begins with a word of gentle rebuke, but then he also gives them comfort because the prophet makes this bold prediction. He says, in essence, he says to Hezekiah, Hezekiah, it is a good thing that you seek me with such a passionate heart. So don't be afraid of this heathen's words, for they are only words. They are only words. When the enemy begins to attack your mind, when the enemy begins to speak to you, you know, and and tries to get you to get off the path that God has given to you to walk on. Remember those words. Don't listen. They're only words. The enemy can only throw words at us, folks. Why is it so often we we get into this thing where we begin to fear, you know, the enemy will walk everything we walk in. We look under every rock to see, who the devil's here, the devil's there. Folks, the devil's not like God. Now there is some demonic activity certainly the bible teaches us that but the devil's a person he can't be a, a thousand places at one time he's pretty fast i can tell you that but 99 times out of 100 you know we, when we deal with all this kind of stuff going on it, it's it's really just a, a you know demon it's a demonic activity the point of the matter is god is much bigger than that god is able to be present God does speak to our hearts. We should be uh, knowledgeable of the fact that He's going to protect us in our times of need. We need to realize that whatever the enemy is going to throw at us is going to be words. But look at how words can destroy. Just go back to Genesis chapter 3. What did, what did the serpent do? You know, Eve, first of all, is standing too close to the tree. That the Lord says, you're not going to get that, you know you, you know, you can eat of any other tree, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you know, don't eat of that tree, because on the day that you eat of it, you're going to surely die. So where's she at? Right by the tree. are we like that? Isn't that just human nature? You know, don't touch that. Our kids do that, right? So, man, you... Don't touch that. We get ourselves all over it. Like Bill Cosby's thing, you know. Why'd you do that? I don't know. He calls it brain damage, but I just call it sin. We're born in sin, right? The fact of the matter is they hadn't sinned yet until then. But she was still tempted. And she was still close. And the serpent said, did God really say that? Did God really say that? Words. Words can kill kill the whole race of men in sin we have to be guarding our hearts about words but here the prophet is saying listen don't be afraid of this heathen's words they're just words the Lord through the prophet proceeds to call the rabshake and the other officers you know what he calls them here he calls them servants of the king of of Assyria he says there in verse 6 don't be afraid of the words which you've heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. That doesn't make, you know, it doesn't really have an impact in the English. But you know what it does? In the, in the Hebrew, it has a tremendous impact because he's actually belittling these, this Rabshakeh and his men because he calls them the king's flunkies. That's what he's calling them. He says, don't worry, man. This is just the king's flunkies. These, these are his errand boys. That's what he's saying about Rabshakeh and the other officers. They're just gophers, you know, to the Lord. They're just going for this and going for that. He says, they're just gophers. And the Lord assures Hezekiah that he will deal with Sennacherib because he has heard the blasphemy and will bring judgment against him. And what's going to happen to Sennacherib? He will hear a rumor. That's what he says. He'll hear a rumor. He'll return to his own land. And he will be killed in his own land. Well, historically, this is what happens to Sennacherib, and also biblically, because we're given that account as well. But one thing you'll notice here is that there is no mention yet of Jerusalem's deliverance, and there's no mention of yet of Assyria's defeat initially, because God is only focusing on the blasphemy. So now in verse 8, this is what he says. Then the Rabshakeh returned. And found the king of Assyria warring against Libna. Now remember that they had been in Lachish. So he's warring against Libna, which is about five miles northwest of Lachish, which is 20 miles to 30 miles southwest of of Jerusalem. So you'll know on the map in your head. For he heard that he had departed from Lachish. And the king heard concerning Tirhaka, king of, of Ethiopia. He has come out to make war with you. So when he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah saying... Thus you shall speak to Hezekiah king of Judah, saying, Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you, saying, Jerusalem shall not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Look, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands by utterly destroying them. And shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered those whom my fathers have destroyed, Gozan and Haran and Rezeph, and the people of Eden who were in Telassar? Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpat, and the king of the city of Sepharvayim, Hena, and Eva? Where, where are they? These are all places that the Assyrians have captured, taken over, conquered. So you, is anybody going to deliver you just because of this Tirhaka coming up from Egypt? That, because that's where he's from. He's called the king of Ethiopia. But. Um, there appears to be here this, this temporary reprieve because now the Rabshakeh, a reprieve, I should say, because the Rabshakeh now leaves uh, to talk to uh, Sennacherib. And Sennacherib has left, uh, he's already left Lakish with the rest of his forces, and, and they're headed about five miles, like I said, to northwest of Libna. And there he receives this word that Tirhaka, the Ethiopian prince would become king of Egypt, in other words, well, about ten years later, uh, his Egyptian troops are, are advancing from the south. Now, so this was the intervention that the Assyrians expected. They expected it because the, Judah had made a, a, an alliance with, with Egypt. So here this, this army is coming up, and, and, uh, and so they respond to it in, in essence. And, uh, but as Isaiah prophesied, it, it would amount to nothing. In other words, Tirhaka and, and the Egyptians coming up are not going to help. It's not going to do anything. For Judah. You see, God is trying to make it clear to them, your alliance with, with, with Egypt is nothing. You've got to trust in me. That, that is the whole point of, of all of this story here, is that you've got to trust in me. Go back to Isaiah 30, verse 1 through 3. Isaiah 30, verse 1. When he says to his own people, Woe to, this, uh, to the rebellious children, says the Lord, who take counsel, but not of me. And who devise plans, but not of my spirit. That they may add sin to sin, who walk down, uh, who go down to Egypt, and, and have not asked my advice to strengthen themselves in the strength of Pharaoh, and to trust in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore, the strength of Pharaoh shall be your shame, and trust in the shadow of Egypt shall be your hum- humiliation. So they've learned that lesson. They're learning that lesson because they need, now they they have you know, Sennacherib sends the Rapshaka The Rapshaki gives them all of these taunts and. Threats, and, and so they're, you know, they're scared out of their gourd. And, and, and so, you know, that, that alliance was just not going to work. So Sennacherib now in a letter, Sennacherib now in a letter informed Hezekiah not to get his hopes up. He writes this letter, he says, hey listen, don't let your God in whom you trust deceive you saying, Jerusalem shall not be given into the hand of the king. He says, Dave, don't get your hopes up just because Rabshakeh has left you and I'm over here fighting in, in this other place in Libna. And, 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 and don't, don't think that I'm, we're gone. We're still around. You're still ours. That's what this letter's about. This, this thing isn't over. I'll be back. Along with that thought, he wants Hezekiah to know that the gods of the other nations could not help them against the Assyrian advance. And like I said, all the cities mentioned here, being either in Syria or in Babylon, were all captured by the Assyrians. So it is, at, it is at this point that we once again see the power of prayer come into effect in the life of Hezekiah and the children of Judah. So look at verse 14 now. Very important passage here, by the way, verses 14 through 20. And Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. Look at that picture. He goes up to the house of the Lord and he spreads this letter before the Lord. And then Hezekiah prayed to the Lord saying, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, the one who dwells between the cherubim, you are God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Truly, Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations of their lands, and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the works of men, hand, the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they have destroyed them. Now, therefore, O Lord our God, save us from His hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that You are the Lord, You alone. You see, the cause of Hezekiah's trouble, the cause of Hezekiah's trouble was now a letter. Essentially, an absolutely real messenger of Satan to buffet him. Sounds like Paul, doesn't it? And Paul in 2 Corinthians there also talks about a messenger of Satan, a thorn in the flesh to buffet him. And here, Hezekiah has this thorn in the flesh, this messenger of Satan, this letter. You know that for some, the mailman's bag or an email message may contain moral or social torpedoes. You ever received a social torpedo or a moral torpedo in the in the mail? It's like, oh my God, you know. You get smacked right in the face. There's somebody that's writing you to tell you off or... Somebody's trying to, you know, take you for money or whatever. I mean, just, just all kinds of things could come up here. But here he has this letter from, from Sennacherib. Don't trust in your God. The letter was an attempt to destroy Hezekiah's faith in God, to dispossess him of his inheritance and to bring him into bondage. Again, do you see how the enemy works? Trying to dispossess us of our inheritance, which can't be done because of what Jesus Christ has already done. But nonetheless, he tries. Tries to get us not to have faith in our, and trust in our Lord. Therefore, when we don't, what happens? We're put into bondage. We're bound now by unbelief. And this is what the enemy of our souls tries to do with us each and every day. And so what, what did Hezekiah do with this letter? He spread it before the Lord. This simple yet solemn act revealed his faith in God. He spread this letter before the Lord. He lays it out all before the Lord. From beginning to end, the whole matter, he lays it before God. Consider this pattern of faith. I want to start in Hebrews 11. Listen to this pattern of faith. Hebrews 11 verse 6, But without faith it is impossible to please Him, for he who comes to God must believe that He is. He lays it before the Lord. He is saying, I believe, God, that You are God. And I lay this letter. I lay this trouble. I lay this, tr- this trial. I lay this circumstance. I lay this situation before You. It is impossible. to Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. And so you got to know Him. To diligently seek Him. And Hezekiah diligently seeks the Lord. And then in Psalm 62 verse 8. It isn't just to trust Him in times that are good. We've got to trust Him all the time. And notice the, the, the psalmist says here in Psalm 62 verse 8. Trust Him at all times. You people pour out your heart before Him. In other words give Him everything about this situation. Pour out your hearts before Him. God is a refuge for us. God is a refuge, you see. And so now we have to trust and pour out our hearts. If we're going to give Him everything, we can't just give Him a little bits and pieces. We have to give God everything. Go back to Psalm 55, verse 22. Just a few pages before Psalm 62. Psalm fifty-five, twenty-two says, Cast your burden on the Lord, and He shall sustain you. He shall never permit the righteous to be moved. Folks, you need to stand on that promise if you trust in God. Stand on the promise that if you cast your burden upon the Lord, He shall sustain you, because He shall never permit the righteous to be moved. Cast your cares upon Him. Be definite. In other words, the whole point here is, be definite in your dealings with God. Be definite in your dealings with God. Be as honest, be as confidential as He desires you to be, but be honest with Him. Hold back nothing from Him. You know, you might, be, you might have to hold back something from me or anybody else. You might go for counsel, whatever. You, you might hold back, you know. But, you know, with God, you can't hold back anything. You've got to give Him everything. You've got to pour it all out. Hold back nothing with Him. Your God and your Father is interested in whatever trouble you're dealing with. Whether you want to believe that or not, He is interested. If you'll bring it to Him, He's interested in everything you're going to lay down before Him. Are you guys getting this? All right, I just want to make sure. I think I'm just looking at you. I think you're just tired. It's been a long day. Okay. But but you're getting it, right? You understand what I'm saying. 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 7 says, Casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. God cares for you. God cares what situations you're in. He cares. He takes an interest in your problems. And Hezekiah's argument, by the way, was simple and yet irresistible. It was a simple yet an irresistible argument. Look at verse 20. Now therefore he says, O Lord our God, save us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the Lord, you alone. How simple and how irresistible is the argument. Lord you save us. You're the Savior. You're the Deliverer. You're the Redeemer. You're the refuge. You're our strength. You're everything. You, are, you alone are the Lord. You do what you have to do and all the nations and all the kingdoms of the earth. will know that you are God and no one else. Hezekiah made some interesting points in his prayer. He first established a relationship with God. Recognize the power of God. You know, you go back to verse 14 and following there. You can see this. He recognizes the power of God. He recognizes Him as the Creator of the heaven and earth. He then petitioned the Lord concerning the King who mocked the living God. Certainly they defeated many nations and destroyed their gods. But they truly were not gods. Only images made by the hands of men. Thus they can't destroy the true and the living God. See the argument here? All these other nations that were wiped out, their gods couldn't help them because all they were were wood and stone. But you're the living and true God. They're not going to be able to destroy you. And we're your people. So show them that you alone are God and do it for your glory. Do what you do for your glory. You know, Hezekiah is praying right on here. You notice he's not saying do it for me. Do it for us says, God, do it for your glory. And this is exactly what would happen. God was going to answer his prayer. Verses 21 and 22. Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Because you have prayed to me against Sennacherib, king of Assyria. This is the word which the Lord has spoken concerning him. Here's the word. The virgin, the daughter of Zion. Can you imagine His people have been so disobedient and all, yet he still looks at them as a virgin. Why? Because they haven't been ravaged yet. He says, "The virgin, the daughter of Zion, has has despised you, laughed at, uh, laughed you at scorn or to scorn. The daughter of Jerusalem has shaken her head behind your back, speaking now who to whom to Sennacherib." Here is the power of Hezekiah's prayer. The Lord is going to answer. Jerusalem is still young, still a virgin, has not and will not be violated by the Assyrians, and they will laugh at them. Jerusalem will laugh at the Assyrians. This is a completely different picture than what the Rabshakeh was trying to paint earlier on in chapter 36. Evidently Sennacherib and the Rabshakeh didn't know who they were dealing with. They really didn't know who they were dealing with. They were dealing with the creator of the heavens and the earth, the one and only and true god as we see in the next portion look at verse 23 whom have you reproached and blasphemed you see the question whom have you reproached and blasphemed against whom have you raised your voice and lifted up your eyes on high against the holy one of israel by your servants you have reproached the lord and said by the multitude of my chariots i have come up to the heights of the or the height of the mountains to the limits of lebanon I will cut down its tall cedars and its choice cypress trees. I will enter its farthest height to its fruitful forest. I have dug and drunk water, and with the soles of my feet I have dried up all the brooks of defense. And then he says, did you not hear long ago how I made it? From ancient times that I formed it? Now I have brought it to pass, that you should be for crushing fortified cities into heaps of ruin." It would be interesting to find out if they ever received this prophecy firsthand, if if Sennacherib and his officers ever received it firsthand. The fact of the matter is that they were ultimately fighting against the Holy One of Israel. And while the Lord did use them to bring judgment on the northern kingdom of Israel, as that last uh, verse stated, it was pride that puffed them up and they saw themselves as gods doing what they pleased. That is how Sennacherib saw himself and saw his people. The truth is, you can't fight against God and win. You can't fight against God and win. You may be allowed a little certain freedom for people today who mock God by their living, by their actions. And they think, well, you know, if there was a God, why isn't He doing something about me? Evidently, there must not be a very... There must not be a God, but if there is, He can't be that powerful. Look at me. It's interesting how it's all going to come out in the wash. You just can't fight against God and win. The Lord will always have your number (laughs) if you try. He'll always have your number. Look at uh, what it goes on to say in verse 27. Therefore their inhabitants had little power. They were dismayed and confounded. They were as the grass of the field and the green herb as the grass on the housetops and grain blighted before it is grown. Speaking of all the nations that have been conquered. But then he says in verse 28, God says, but I know your dwelling place. It's like he's saying, I know where you live. You ever heard somebody say that? And don't mess with me because I know where you live. That's what God is saying. I know your dwelling place. You're going out, you're coming in. And your rage against me. Because your rage against me and your tumult have come up to my ears, therefore I will put my hook in your nose and my bridle in your lips and I will turn you back by the way which you come. Or which you came, I should say. The Assyrians saw themselves as big and powerful and when compared to man, they were. Compared to other nations, they were. But when God sees them, they're nothing. When God sees them, they just, nada. They had defeated nations that were weak in God's eyes. But now judgment was coming and He knew all about them. And there was no place to hide. The Lord then turns the tables on them. You see, when when you were taken captive by the Assyrians, they would actually place hooks in your nose. Sometimes in your jaws. But they would place these hooks on your body and they would lead you back to Nineveh that way. They would treat you as a common animal. And now God was saying that He was going to bridle them and bring them back to Assyria exactly the same way. The hooks in the nose. doesn't feel comfortable, does it? This is just a personal insight, so I'm not... I find it hard to believe. I see people with... I saw this guy that had a stick in his nose one time. Honestly, I mean, I was like, man, I didn't realize National Geographic came home, you know. I used to think that it was only a National Geographic you see this kind of stuff, you know. All kinds of things sticking, earlobes down here, plates, you know. And uh, now it's it's around us. My own personal thought, (laughs) that's just bondage it's bondage we could either be bound to those things or we can be bound to Jesus a bound servant with freedom to live unto eternity oh well it's just me Sorry. You, know, you know I love people I have people very close to me that are you know that way but it's bondage please understand that uh, where am I By the way, this prayer is also found in 2 Kings 19. The same prayer. So go back and read 2 Kings 18 and 19. You see pretty much what we're seeing here. Okay, Let's go on because of time. Verse 30 says, This shall be a sign to you. You shall eat this year such as grows of itself. Now this is speaking to Judah. You shall eat this year uh, such as grows of itself. In the second year what springs from the same. Also in the third year sow and reap. Plant vineyards and eat the fruit of them. And the remnant who have escaped to the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant, and those who escape from Mount Zion, the zeal of the Lord of hosts, will do this. Now, this sign was for Hezekiah, not Sennacherib. It was for Hezekiah. Things would be tough the first two years there. They wouldn't be able to plant, but only eat what would come from the ground. By the third year, they would be able to plant again and eat fruit of the land. So as dark as it may seem, the Lord always has a a faithful remnant, and they will bear fruit. God will take care of His own. He will take care of His people. Though at first it's a little lean, you know. You think of those lean years that uh, Joseph had to deal with in in Egypt, and yet, uh, you know, in his wisdom that God gave him, they were able to actually store up for, you know, in in those times of leanness so that they could have, whenever they had those, those situations. We go on. Verse 33. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, He shall not come into this city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with a shield, nor build a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same shall he return. And he shall not come into this city, says the Lord, for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. So what God was doing was clearly drawing a line in the sand. He was drawing a line in the sand with Assyria. And even though the uh, Assyrian military was poised to lay siege on Jerusalem, to ultimately crush them, it would never happen. Not even an arrow would come over the walls. Think about this. Not even an arrow. The Lord of hosts was defending Jerusalem, just as He said. Why does God defend the city of Jerusalem? He says, for my own sake. He defends his own glory. For my own sake, I defend the city. Now, I don't know why it is that some people think that they have to defend the glory of the Lord. It is unnecessary because he is more than able to defend his own glory. We don't have to defend the Lord. We can declare the Lord, proclaim the Lord. We don't have to defend him. He's pretty good at defending himself. Defending his own glory. But he also defends the city for my servant David's sake. While David had died almost 300 years before this, God still honored his promise to David. Now you have to go back to 2 Samuel chapter 7 and read a larger passage of this to see the whole covenant that he is is, uh, honoring. But uh, let me give you just verses 12 and 13. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seat after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And you could just draw that line all the way to Jesus, okay? So you understand the connection with David and Jesus. Jesus, the son of David. Jerusalem deserved judgment. We deserve judgment you understand where I'm going with this? Jerusalem deserved judgment. We deserve judgment. But God defends and blesses us not for our own sake, but for His own sake and for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's why He defends us. That's why He blesses us. For His glory and the glory of His only begotten Son. It's a wonderful thing to be a part of God's God's family. Because He loves us with an everlasting love. Though we don't even deserve it. He loves us. Lastly now in verses 36 to 38. Then the angel of the Lord went out. One angel killed the camp of the Assyrians. 185,000. A couple of chapters ago or last chapter... There was this mocking of, of you know, one, one Assyrian being stronger than 2,000 of, of uh, Judah's charioteers, which if they could even ride a horse, that's how they mocked them. But it only takes one angel of God, the angel of the Lord, to destroy 185,000 of the enemy. And when people arose early in the morning, there were, there were the corpses all dead. And so Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went away, returned home, and remained at Nineveh. Now it came to pass, as he was worshipping in the house of Nisroch, his god, they had many gods, but that was his particular god, that his sons Adramalech and Shahrazer struck him down with a sword his own sons and they escaped into the land of Ararat in Turkey and then Esarhad and his son reigned in his place that was the end of Sennacherib God has an interesting way of dealing with things doesn't he you see 20 years would come uh, would would pass between verse 37 and 38 20 years there's a, a space of 20 years there Sennacherib may have thought in that time that he had escaped the judgment of God. See, that's what a lot of people are thinking today. That hasn't done anything. I guess he's not around. I guess he's asleep. I guess he doesn't care. This king of Assyria, who was so pompous in his attitudes and actions, thinking that no one could stand against him, not even the gods, was killed by his own children as he came into his temple to worship his God. His own gods could not save him from the true and living God or from his own children. But our God will deliver us. Our God has delivered us through his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. You see in Proverbs 16 verse 18 and I'll close with this. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty arrogant spirit before a fall and it will catch you it will catch up with you not you in particular but it will catch up with any person that thinks he's getting away with it all eventually God has your number God knows where you live and judgment will come if you don't know And if you reject the one true and living God and His Son, Jesus Christ. But if you know Him, you're safe. If you know Him, you're protected. If you know Him, you're kept. If you dwell with Him and you abide with Him, you'll be kept in His wonderful grace. And when you face those trials, when you face those situations we can turn to him and lay them out as Hezekiah laid it out spread it before the Lord and said Lord you are God your enemies could never stand I will trust in you I will trust in you let's pray